How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello there, my chickens and dishes. How are you? Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, just in case, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this exceptional name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if we've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around the table, and even what's the best breakfast ever. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes or the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode and don't forget I'm Portuguese. So if you don't understand something, just Google it. My guest today has eaten his way across the globe. He's a culinary expert, storyteller, chef, television personality, director, producer, entrepreneur, food critic, journalist, teacher, come on, Andrew, and author, co-creator and host of the Travel Channel television series Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern, Bizarre Foods Delicious Destinations, Dining with Death, The Zimmern List, and others. Also on the Food Network series, The Big Food Truck Tip. He was presented the James Beard Foundation Award four times, He also hosts a web series on YouTube called Andrew Zimmern Cooks. His latest show premiered on MSNBC and it's called What's Eating America. Although he was born in New York, it was Minneapolis that became his true home, giving him back his happiness and purpose. Andrew Zimmern, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Better than I deserve to be, I can tell you that. <laughs> okay. Two important questions. Since I'm from Portugal, have you been to Portugal? I have. So tell me, tell me a little bit, Andrew. Did you like it? Uh, Portugal's a magical place. I feel in the last couple of years, the food has gotten a little more play. It's gotten swept up in our love for all the foods of the Iberian Peninsula. It's gotten swept up in that, that love for Spanish cuisine, but it's, it's, it's really quite different and unique. And especially in the, it's a small country and it's a narrow country, but the food of the seashore And the food of the hills and the interior is very, very specifically and uniquely Portugal. There is something about Lisbon as a city that was destroyed and was rebuilt that has created, I think, a love of life that extends into every little taverna, 
every little food market, every seaside fish cantina that's really special. There's yeah. also a creativity going on there. Some of the, the best food markets, new ones, uh, and food halls that I've been to exist in that country. And there is something magical about watching an entire nation eat seasonally. And very few places can say that. You actually have to seek out small countries for that, ones with smaller footprints. I mean, you know, October in uh, Montana is much different in terms of food that's available than October in Florida in yeah. our country. To go to a country like Portugal and be there in the summertime, and realize that aside from a few plates of ham that may come your way and an occasional piece of pork or beef that breaks the taste bud boredom that the chef or the, the home cook or wherever you happen to be eating utilizes, but to basically see a whole country turn their attention towards what's coming out of the water is such a glorious thing. And obviously, I mean, you know, the birthplace of the tinning and canning industry, the... <laughs> A country that is taking its place on the global culinary stage. I think there are a lot of Portuguese chefs, I think now, showing people that, you know, salt cod isn't something to shy away from. And small grilled oily fish are actually the way to go. And, you know, all the simple, easy unshowy, unpretentious food that is uniquely Portuguese, I, I think is going to be increasingly popular with the home cook. It's yeah. not fussy and it's, mm -hmm. and it's just delicious. I'm a very big fan. And what's, what's actually fascinating too is that maybe as much if not more so than the food and obviously COVID-19 interrupted that, but my understanding from talking to all my travel expert friends is that 2021 bookings are just exploding as people are, you know, planning on traveling in 2021. I saw more pictures last summer on my Instagram feed and in my Twitter feed of people vacationing during the summer in Portugal than at any other time, maybe in all the previous years combined. Yeah. I, I think something has happened that has gotten people excited about traveling to that country. Yeah, and look, I love a beach vacation. My, my goal is to get people off the beach and get them to meet the people and interact with the people. I had a night in a small little town about, oh, 15 miles outside of Lisbon proper. That Do you remember the name? I don't. I, I could look it up I, five or six years ago. And it was a suburb. It was a neighborhood that had a nickname. And uh, as Lisbon has kind of spread out, and where they hosted their annual, the country's annual snail festival. And, you know, we drove up and there were big tents. I mean, ones that could hold thousand people each spread out across what in our country would be a fairground or campground. Park your car in these big grassy lots, walk in, pay your 10 bucks, whatever it was and go from tent to tent where hundreds of cooks, home cooks, restaurants, hotel, I mean, anyone who loves the 10 different varieties of snails cooked a thousand different ways. And you just sat there and ate family style at these long benches of people. You could gorge yourself on snails, 
people would go, you know, wine, beer, hang out outside, come back in, eat another meal. It was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Families, friends, couples on dates. It was a night that I will literally always remember that was just absolutely spectacular. So yeah, I'm very, uh, I'm very pro Portugal. Hey, that was the best answer I ever had from a guest about if you have been to Portugal. So I'll send you the invoice later because that was awesome. <laughs> a couple of things on that. First, the name of the place is called Lourdes. Yes, a, yes, yes. Uh -huh. Just for what you were saying about the uh, Lisbon had to rebuild itself, basically. It was after the earthquake in 1755, mm -hmm. just so people yep. know. It's a very crumbly city in a way, modern-ish in other way. I go back home every other year, every year, go back to Lisbon. And it's true where you say... Lisbon nowadays, people associate what Barcelona might have been like 15 years ago and Berlin mm -hmm. 20. Everybody's going to Lisbon. I go to, like I said, every year I go back. And just last year, I was at a restaurant and I'm from D.C. Oh, well, I live in D.C. And literally both tables next to me, to my right and to my left, it was two couples from D.C. I, I even asked him, like, can you guys go somewhere else? I mean, there's just such a big, the country is huge. And other, other thing you were saying, it's true. People are always very surprised because you can drive, uh, you can cross the country in about two hours and a half, probably. South to the north, it's about a nine-hour drive, but you can cross the country two hours and a half. You go an hour away from the coast, you forget about fish. Where's the fish, right? It's funny because mm -hmm. here, yeah, seasonal, it's a, it's a very, very big thing there, but I appreciate. So do you know any Portuguese words? Uh, you're just going to embarrass me because <laughs> the, my, my Portuguese accent and my ability, my ability to make the proper sounds with my mouth whether it's Portuguese or Portuguese as it's spoken in Brazil mm -hmm. are both horrific. And I, I, I will confess, I mean, Mongolian, Thai, Russian, French, Spanish, you know, Scandinavian languages in the VO booth, not a problem. Nail it every time. Anytime we do a show in Portugal or Brazil, It is like I have to sit there and study and practice because it's so easy to blow it. Okay. Well, it's okay. You started well, Andrew. Now you kind of like dropped a little bit, but it's fine. No. That's okay. I'm, you know, the, the good thing about me is that I'm, I'm completely accepting of where I am in my life and I'm, I'm fairly conf confident in my, the totality of my skill set. So if my biggest problem today is uh, my limited understanding of, of Portuguese. Port you're fine, right? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, hey, good. bacalao. Bacalao, thank you. The salted codfish. Who's Andrew Zimmerman before 1990, and who's he after that? Well, Andrew Zimmerman was many people before 1990. You know, a son, an employee, at times a business owner, a funny, smart guy with a lot of potential, a good friend, Uh, a stalwart companion, a clear-eyed adventurer, a loving human being, and in other years, a shitty friend who would tell you he loved you while he tried to lift your wallet from your back pocket, an abusive person, a user of people and a taker of things, because my addiction and my alcoholism had turned me into the cannibal in the living room that addicts and alcoholics at their worst become. And I went from being, you know, just your average American kid in many senses, 13, 14 years old, to 
person who didn't care whether they lived or died, didn't care what you thought of them, didn't care what they looked like, didn't care about, they didn't care about anything. And that's a horrible place. That's a horrible place to be. Everything changed once I, once I sobered up. When take people who are addicts and alcoholics, when we take people who have other mental health issues, when we take people who have a whole variety of challenges in life, from our wounded warriors to traumatized children who have seen horrific things in the last few years in America, when you are able to sprinkle those people with dignity and respect and actually treat them as human beings, it is like fertilizer and water on a potted plant on a sunny stoop. It just starts growing and looks gorgeous and develops into the most beautiful plant. And I, I think that we have found in America somehow an inability to empathize and connect with people who have less, people who have been othered, people who have not been given access. And we somehow feel there's a selfishness in America today that is extremely destructive. Mm -hmm. We are so much better off in every way possible by lifting other people up. We, we truly, Paul Wellstone, one of my great mentors, the late Senator from Minnesota, used this line all the time. And I, I, not a day goes by that I don't repeat it. We all win when we all win. And that really is true, whether that's our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, our country. When everyone has the ability to succeed, our successes become bigger and greater. And it is, a, it is something that has been so easily forgotten over the last, it's why I started Bizarre Foods. You know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in anything other than one thing when I created that TV show. I wanted to teach people about patience, tolerance, and understanding with other people. And I thought the best way to do that was to show people eating in other countries. And the best way to engage the audience was to have a hook that would sort of grab them. Everyone else can do a barbecue show or, you know, a, a show about sauteed chicken breasts that bored me, but put me in a tribal situation in, you know, Asia, South America, Africa, America, North America. Let me show people doing something that looks different on one hand, right? Based on maybe what's on the plate, but everything else is identical. And I can show you a way to humanize and create empathy and connection between people. And that's really what that show was intended to be and also be an entertainment for some people. So yeah, that's a, a long answer to a short question. You can, you can answer every question with half an hour that we all want to listen, <laughs> so it's fine. What was about one of the things that when I moved to the US and you start having a big understanding, although even what's going on in the country right now is the sense of community. I do get overwhelmed just to realize it, it's something very important. I had guests here as well talking about how important the community is, you know, to help lift everything and help mm -hmm. others. What was about the community in Minneapolis that helped you through the difficult time in your life? I landed in the right place at the right time. When I left New York, January 28th of 1992, it was, I think at that point I would have sobered up in a liquor store. I had, you know, tried to kill myself, was holed up in a flop house hotel. I was at, at the bottom of all bottoms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and didn't care if I lived or died. And four days later, I was in treatment in Center City, Minnesota, at what is now Hazel and Betty Ford. Back then was just Hazelden. And, you know, I went through there. Uh, I was a week on the hospital unit, four or five weeks in primary treatment. And then I came down to St. Paul, Minnesota, one of our two twin cities here on each side of the Mississippi River, and entered the Hazelden Continuum of Care once again by being a resident of their halfway house for six months called Fellowship Club. And at that point, you know, a halfway house, for those that are unfamiliar, is exactly what it sounds like. You're, you're halfway back to life. You are in a, an environment where you have some restrictions, but you're asked to get a job, you're interacting in society and all the rest of that. So I'm, I guess that first week, I'm five, six weeks sober, something like that, which means I'm very confused. I'm quick to anger, quick to shame, quick to be overjoyed, wearing a mask. I don't want to let you into how I'm really thinking or feeling. At the same time, very grateful to be alive, very grateful that I have a, an umpteenth chance. And at that point in my life, for the first time, I'm taking advantage of that opportunity. And up until the time I was, I mean, look, all through my 20s, people would throw me a life preserver and I would throw it back at them because I didn't like the color orange. I mean, you know, this time I was, I was hanging on to that life jacket and not letting anyone take it away from me. So inwardly, I was slightly different directed. So the first night that I'm at the halfway house, you can't go out on your own, but you can go out with senior peers, people who've been there for, you know, more than two months. And a bunch of the senior peers said, hey, we're going to a uh, 12-step meeting up the street. You want to come with us? And I said, sure, because it was a requirement to go. And, uh, but I was eager to go and it was, I mean, it was five below zero. There's four feet of snow on the ground. So you can imagine this, this high plowed snow pad with a narrow path in between from the curb, 80 feet down this stone path to this house where this 12 step meeting was. There was a lady in the middle of the path and she was probably in her sixties. She was wearing attractive kind of fancy higher, not high heels, but elevated shoes, stockings, tweed uh, skirt suit, and a short sort of fur coat and fur hat and big fur gloves. I, as I was walking down the path, I thought, how are her legs not freezing? <laughs> and who is this strange lady? And she just looked really elegant. She just looked really elegant. And she looked like the story I made up in my head was like, wow, this woman has got everything going on. And, you know, from the ensemble and the fur, I was like, oh, she, she must be well off. And as I'm walking towards her, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to walk around her. I wanted to avoid her. And the reason that I wanted to avoid her was because I was ashamed of who I was. It had nothing to do with her. I, the tape in my head still told me that I wasn't good enough. I was the problem. I mean, remember, I'm 10, 12 weeks removed from living in an abandoned building in lower Manhattan, you know, sleeping on a pile of dirty clothes and hadn't bathed in a year. I mean, so I, the tape in my head is that I, am, I belong nowhere near this person. Mm -hmm. And as I get close to them and I, I realize I can't step up onto the snow, it's too high. 
So I'm going to try to turn sideways as I'm walking towards her as I get closer to kind of give her the nonverbal clue that I want to slide by. <laughs> and she comes, she kind of turns to cut me off and she says, welcome. And she reaches out to give me a hug. And I gave her a hug back and I realized that she was the greeter for this 12 step meeting that she's standing there in the five below zero cold for 25, 30 minutes solely as service work so that people coming in to attend the meeting are welcomed properly. And it became overwhelming. By the time I got to the front door of that house and got into the meeting itself, I was already, you know, my eyes were moist with tears. It was such a profound experience. I hadn't been welcomed or encouraged to be somewhere in years. I was the person that you wanted to avoid and not be around, and rightfully so, deservedly so. And the message that I got from that woman was that this community, this the first, the recovering community in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and then the larger community in our city, and then in our state, as, as the years went by, I realized that it was the, the love and the care of other human beings that was actually restoring me to sanity. And I owe the state and, and its people a debt that I can never repay. And it is, it is one of the motivating reasons why I spend so much time doing so much service work, giving, trying to give back so much because number one, it's what saved me. Number two, it keeps me sober and happy and even keeled, right-sized. You know, when I'm doing things for other people, I'm not wrapped up in my head and I'm not prone to the, the destructive thinking that, you know, pops into anyone's mind. And when I say destructive thinking, it's not like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, throw a rock through a window or burn down a house. Destructive thinking can be, oh, I'm going to call that friend and oh, I'm not going to go over there for dinner tonight. I just feel like sitting on the couch, yeah. even though you said yes three days ago. That's a destructive thought. Uh, it disconnects you from other people and it takes you away from the commitment that you made. So it's a, it's a way of approaching life. So I love this state and its people. Now, they're, like any group, like any place, there are a lot of people doing a lot of things here that I don't like, that aren't good, that don't support the same point of view that I have from a civic standpoint, from a loving and caring community building standpoint. And so I work very hard to change those things in the community where I was birthed again, mm -hmm. rebirthed, I guess. I think one of the most fascinating parts about you is that you are very open about your past. And mm -hmm. as in the hospitality world, a lot of people like to not like to cover because I understand there's an embarrassment. There's a lot of things why people go that way. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I witnessed that when I was in, in Belgium and it was, it was hard being in a very, you know, Michelin star restaurant and seeing basically the whole staff hook to things. And I was just this trainee in the middle, like, Oh wow. You know, and I always try to run away from all of that, but it's sadly, it's just something that happens in our industry. Personally, well, it's a good place to hide. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How do you personally try to promote a working environment that is efficient, but not so stressful as to drive someone towards substance abuse? Well, there is a learned aspect to substance abuse. 
in other words, the active ingesting of chemicals or booze or whatever it is repeatedly can create a physical addiction. So addiction can be learned. Then there's another group of people for whom they're addicts and alcoholics before they ever, before they ever pick up the first drink or drug. To me, I say it five times a week on Twitter when somebody pings me and says, what do I do? I'm in trouble. And I say, you have to grab one other human being and tell them your truth. Grab another human being and tell them your truth. And then your second step is ask them to help you get to a, a hospital, a recovery facility, a 12-step meeting, whatever, whatever it is that your ism is, there's then a next step. But by connecting to another human being, we're able to literally put the brakes on. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen that not happen. Sometimes the brakes, once they're put on, there's just a sliver of opportunity, a crack in the door. Sometimes a whole garage door opens and stays locked for that person. It could be anything in between. So this is a long way of saying that transparency and communication cannot be underestimated. And so in all of our businesses, we try to maintain an atmosphere of transparency and communication so that people feel as comfortable as we can possibly communicate in coming forward and talking about anything and everything. That is a vital, vital piece of the, of the puzzle. Here at our, you know, I'm talking to you from our home office where I, I have three businesses and, you know, we have daily meetings, we have weekly activities, we have kickoff calls every Monday with the whole team. We do everything we can to promote this atmosphere of transparency and communication. I'll give you one technical example as an entrepreneur that we do. We, we have what I call sort of open awareness finance conversations, not just with our team leads, but with everyone. Every employee here, even our intern, can tell you what the financial situation is in each of our three companies. And that sounds like a little thing and it sounds sort of inert and it sounds like a big why bother. But since we are businesses and we don't want to close, we want to continue to employ people, we want to grow, uh, we want to make contributions to our community. If everybody has that kind of awareness about the foundational elements of the company, it's just another example of a way to communicate. Yeah. The other thing that we make sure to do is that, you know, all team leads, everyone, myself, any, anywhere you walk around the office, there are people, we have places to sit and talk. We make sure that we're always talking to everybody. How you do, we have a very close knit group here. I, you know, I mean, it's entrepreneur one. I'm, I look, I'm 59. I'm not 29. So the business I've been running, some of them I've been running for quite a while. So there is an atmosphere of, Hey, how you doing here? And if someone is like, good, and doesn't look, I mean, you know, they, they, they don't get pinned to the wall, but it's not like you just let someone slide on that. It's like, Hey, what's going on? Um, and we really try to encourage that kind of, uh, that kind of atmosphere um, here in restaurants that we're partners in. We believe in elevating the level of inclusion with all employees. We believe in uh, reasonable hours. We believe in paid sick leave. We believe in all the different things that we know conclusively 
work to create an atmosphere of equality in our restaurants. And it's very, very important to us. And you look great for 59, by the way, Andrew. Oh, if thank you, you very much. I didn't know you. I would say you were solid 58, but just right solid. on. Solid. Right, I mean, maybe 57 and change. But <laughs> you talked about Bizarre Foods, how the idea started, right? And why mm-hmm. do you want to do it? How did the show get its start, basically? Just talking a little bit more about that. I left restaurants. I got into local TV, then national TV. Then I was a part of other people's shows. I kept pushing tape and pushing ideas. And after four or five years of doing that, I found myself at Discovery Inc. In, when it was located in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, at the Discovery Building in the big conference room. And Pat Young, the then general manager, and 10 other executives were around this conference table. And I pitched them this idea about telling cultural stories and using food as the lens through which to do that. And I described it in, in every aspect of its most serious tone. And they said, that's great. That's a BBC show. That's a PBS show. Sounds fantastic. And I mean, remember, this is 17, 18 yep. years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's, other shows like that had not been done. In fact, it was just prior to Tony starting doing Cook's Tour on Food Network, just calendar-wise. So, you know, this this traveling and food thing and cultural exploration had not been done. He said, look, Pat Yen said, look, that's, that's eight episodes and you're going to get love and applause and you might win an award and then you're going to be back here next year trying to sell me something else. He said, but if you can find a way, you know, he said, you're 75% education, 25% entertainment. That's not us. We're 75% entertainment, 25% education. And he says, if you can figure out a way to do that, come back here tomorrow and tell us. And so I booked some time to talk to them and went back to the hotel and thought about it and had the idea of doing Foods from the Fringe, had the idea that one man's weird is another man's wonderful just based on my own travels and that that could be the hook. That could be the entertainment. I went back in and talked that piece of it through with them the next day. And he tossed me a laser pointer and hit a button and this map of the world emerged on one end of the room. I was so intimidated. I almost peed my pants (laughs) and they said to me, that's great. Okay. So can you make a hundred of these? is this show only got 12 episodes in it? And I remembered something that my editor uh, had taught me about writing. One one of my magazine and book editors. And they had said, when you're trying to make a point to people, imagine that you've already explained it once or twice and they still don't get it. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be exasperated. But if you approach it like it's the third time around, sometimes you get really simple and you distill it down and you lose a lot of the fluff. And so I grabbed the pointer and I was just like, sure. And I just pointed to Lapland and talked about Laplanders and reindeer and the scarcity of reindeer milk and cloudberries and crayfish in the summertime and salt cod, harfisker and all these other things. And I went you know, to uh, Mongolia and talked about it being a meat and milk culture. And I just kept going around the world. I think I 
I got to like 40 locations and they were like, please stop enough already. And, and I just hit two or three or four foods in all these different cultures and communities that people really didn't understand. And I mean, literally that was it. They said, go find a production company to align yourself with and we'll talk about a show. And so I aligned myself with a production company. We went back to the network. They gave us a couple thousand dollars to make a proof of concept sizzle reel. We did that. Then they had me do two specials, uh, one of which became Bizarre Foods of Asia is what it was called. And we went to four or five countries and it became, it rated really well for the network and they tested it all kinds of off out. It, it just kept rating really well. The other special that I did was called World's Best Ballpark Foods. And uh, I wanted to do that show so badly. Uh, that didn't do as well. And thus Bizarre Foods was born. They made an order of 10 shows and tested them when they got them. They did well. When they aired, the first show did well. The second show did microscopically better. The third show did not do as well. I was convinced, you know, the show aired on Monday. We got the ratings on Tuesday. And if you don't grab the audience and grow, that's the kiss of death in the TV business. And I was convinced that we would get the call later in the week that said, yeah, we're just, we're not going to renew this thing. We're going to air the next seven on Saturday mornings. You know, the, the graveyard shift for <laughs> travel food shows. The next day, that Wednesday, we got a call from Jay Leno's producers saying, can you fly to LA and be on the show tomorrow night, Thursday? And I was, I was stunned. And it, our third show that aired was our first episode in uh, Ecuador. And I had gone uh, to Otavalo, where they have the, one of the largest open-air farm markets in the world is there. And we had had some off time, and I found a witch doctor. And I told the producer, I said, let's go shoot it. They're like, we're on a break. I said, no, 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 we, we have to shoot this. It's me and a witch doctor. And they're like, we're a food and travel show. I said, who cares? I'm, we, let's, let's, because this witch doctor, the brujero, his sign, and I could read a little limited Spanish, promised exorcisms. And I said, come on, I, I need an exorcism. This is, this is great. So this is a scene that a lot of fans are very familiar with. But, you know, I, the guy strips me naked, spits all over me, covers me in homemade hooch, lights me on fire, beats guinea pigs against my chest until they're dead, takes these big bushes and beats me with these bushes, these branches. My whole body breaks out in hives. Yeah. He piles all the stuff in a corner, lights it on fire, scoops up the ashes and throws it in the river and tells me, there you go, you're exercised. And the Jay Leno people had seen this and they were laughing so hard. They said, we got to get this guy on TV. So Thursday night I'm on the Leno show. You know, Jay did, it was a good appearance and Jay said, Oh my God, you got to come back. It was the first of what would be four five, six appearances over the next couple of years with Jay. And obviously the next, you know, when in those days, when the tonight show, you know, says, Hey, you're, they give you the tonight show blessing. The ratings on this little network just went through the roof. Now at that point, by the time the show was on, Tony's show had, Cook's tour had come over to Travel Channel. Then they changed it into No Reservations. So it was an incredible thing that there was a show 
on Tony's night that was also rating really, really well. And that they had tried 10 different shows in that time slot over the course of the year that they had been airing Tony's stuff. But people just turned the dial because Tony's show would be followed by world's best bathrooms, right? These unhosted things. To finally have a strong, immersive, complimentary show to his, for the next year, Monday night ratings were off the charts for the Travel Channel. And then, of course, they pulled them apart and put left Tony on Monday and put me on Tuesday. So now they had two nights to build around. And I guess the rest is kind of TV history in yeah. a sense. I'm super proud of it. You know, we made hundreds and hundreds of hours of many different shows for Travel Channel. Uh, we just won an Emmy for one of them, the Zimmern List. And Bizarre Foods went from, you know, being a good show to a show that was on for many years to now when you sort of look at food and travel TV media history, a show that actually uh, has a place in that story, which I'm super proud of for the hundreds of people that worked on this show and for the thousands and thousands of people whose stories we were able to tell, which was at its core what we wanted the most. We wanted to tell other people's stories. What was the most unusual delicacy that you've tried? Oh gosh, so many. Yeah, you know, it's, it's always the foods that you know you'll never eat again. A couple quick examples. Uh, we're in Samoa. We go to shoot the scene with the Matai uh, of the villages. We're on an out island in tribal Samoa and they're going to dive for giant scallops. And we show up and no one's there. And our translator asks around and uh, they said, oh, the, the weather conditions, you know, the ocean is flat and the sun is out and that never happens. Because off a mile past the reef in Samoa is, you know, some of the deepest trenches in the Pacific. We're talking about many miles deep. And so the swells are huge. So a flat day there happens once or twice a decade, no wind. So we're like, where are they? They said, oh, they're, they're gathering the coral worms. We're like, oh my God. We race back into the village, you know, where there was actually a, a little pier. We get on a boat, paid some guy to take us out. We go out, we find all the villagers are in these homemade canoes with these skimmers and they're pulling, it looks like algae off the top of the water. It's like this blue-green paste. And we come to find that once or twice a decade, when the atmospheric conditions are right, the coral, deep, deep, deep down, releases this worm, microscopic, and it rises to the surface and dies in the sunlight and the warm water. And then it sinks slowly back down, and it's like the mother's milk of the coral. But the villagers it tastes like a combination of like shrimp feces and iodine. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And it's bright, bright blue. <laughs> okay. And they cook it over a fire on a stone or in a skillet. If they have one, they eat it raw. It's a super nutrient. And I actually quite liked it, but I know as long as I live, I will never eat that. I mean, you have to be in the right place at the right time. The odds are you literally have to live yeah. on a beach in a deep, Pacific Atoll for a decade to have a chance to do that. Same yeah. show, by the way. I mean, it's one of our epic adventures on the show. Same show, I ate a giant scallop. The shell was twice the size of a basketball. And they only harvest one a year. And we were lucky enough to be there and partake. 
when am I ever going to do it? It's one of the most protected species in the world. And the reason that they allow each of the tribal communities around the, this island is because it's their traditional food and they have a ritual around it. And mm-hmm. so they let them harvest one a year. So to be there at that point is phenomenal. In the jungles of Suriname with native peoples who, whose ancestors had escaped from a prison as slaves, fled downriver and founded a village called Malobi about 150 miles down the Suriname River from Antanarivo, the city. They, they fled and they took all of their African traditions with them. They hadn't, they had only been in the prison in Suriname before being, they were going to be sold and they escaped. They had only been there for a short time, a week or two. And so when you walk into this village, and I've been to Africa 50 times and, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of country and lived with a lot of tribes. And we came down this river and it was, it was like being back in Western Africa because they built their homes the same way that they did. They, they did everything as they knew it. Their culture was almost perfectly preserved. And except for the fact that some of them speak two languages, you would not know. Uh, one day we went out hunting in the jungle with some of the villagers and it was an incredible experience. They killed animals and prepared them for us that we could not taxonomically identify using our phones. It was for sure a very intense experience eating some of these jungle birds, these wild pygmy pigs that they, I mean, just these turtles. Again, when am I ever going to get a chance to do that again? And I could just keep going down and down and down the line. Uh, Special meals with, you know, tribal peoples preserving cultures that are rare or disappearing is probably the easiest place to pick and choose from all that. But I also had, you know, meals in, you know, people's homes in Shanghai that were from a culinary standpoint, from a execution and technique standpoint, I may not ever see the like of that cooking again. Your new show, What's Eating America on MSNBC, can you explain to people what's the premise of the show and what have you come across that gives you the most hope for the food industry? What's Eating America on MSNBC is a series that explores civics and politics through the lens of food. It's a very, very serious but entertaining look at the, what's really going on in our country. We explore heavy-duty issues, immigration, voter suppression, climate crisis, health and food. It's done very well, is nominated. One of our episodes is nominated for a big award this year, and I can't wait to make more of them. We're negotiating a second, se- second season right now. I think what gives me hope is the people. There's so many things wrong in our world, in our country, in some of our systems. That so many things that are broken or seemingly beyond repair. But I'll just give you a quick story. I was out playing disc golf last night by myself, playing around. I caught up to a pair of young guys and they said, oh, do you want to play through? And I said, sure. And, you know, I drove and then I said, why don't you guys just go and we'll just, 
and, and we ended up playing eight or nine holes together as a threesome. And about halfway through, one of them said, are you Andrew Zimmer? And I said, yeah. And, oh, we're big fans. We've gone to a lot of places that you recommend to eat. One of them worked in a restaurant and the restaurant had closed permanently. He said, what do you think is going to happen to the restaurant industry? And, you know, I co-founded the Independent Restaurant Coalition. I do a lot of work on trying to help our industry and to try to, to stabilize it for the future. I said to him, I said, I, I don't know. I said that the longer this goes on, the, the less the predictions that I would have made six months ago make sense. So I'm, I'm not in the prediction business. I said, but people love to eat. And the most creative, the most generous, the smartest, funniest, warmest, empathetic, beautiful group of people in the world are people in the food world. Whether they're growers, pickers, packers, shippers, chefs, servers, hosts, dishwashers, it does not matter. That group of people that's in our food system, it confirmed for me making those six episodes are the best people in our country. Their creative power, their entrepreneurial spirit, their survival capability will emerge in whatever condition our country is in, in three, six, nine, 10, 12 months, whatever it is. And a lot of things will go back to being the way they were, right? There will, there will be places that you can go in and sit down and a server will take your order and food will come and you'll pay for it and leave. We call them restaurants. But so many things will change. We know that tablecloth restaurants are never going to come back to the degree that they were, that we know that delivery and takeout is never going to go back to its pre-C19 limited levels. It is going to be a part and parcel of what we do. There's lots of things that we know, but the ability for food people to remake this industry for the better, to make it more equitable, to make it more just, to make it more financially secure. Look, the restaurant industry was brittle and, and cracked and quite frankly, I think broken before COVID-19. The C-19 pandemic just pulled the curtain back on the problem for the rest of America to see it. These were unsustainable businesses in almost every sense of the word. Yet, the people in them will figure it out. It will be better. I believe in the power of people to make the positive change that needs to be there. And I can see it already. Shifting our conversation a little bit, what was your first memory of taste? First memory of taste is seafood, shellfish. Found out later I was fed as a young kid. I, have a, I actually have a picture of myself. I'm three years old and I'm devouring a seafood meal uh, in my family home uh, during the summertime. And that's my first... Almost at the same time, I remember my grandmother's roast chicken in her apartment in West End Avenue. Those are my two first food memories. Most underrated ingredient for you? Most underrated ingredient? Yeah. Uh, lemons. I don't think home cooks cook enough with acids in solid or liquid form. And they don't, I don't think people understand how transformative those things are. I put a tablespoon of citrus or vinegar into pea soup or bean soups And if you tasted one pot side by side, you'd know 
how much better the other one tastes. It's not salt. It, it is transformative, especially with a rich protein like a bean or legume. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Overrated ingredients. I'm going to say premium expensive things, but the most overrated of all those is Wagyu beef. Best breakfast you can have. Sex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then coffee. And then coffee. And, okay. and then a bagel with a schmear and some smoked salmon from Russ and Daughters. But first, okay. The strangest combination, some people might do it food-wise. They put it together that you just cannot accept. Strange. Oh God, you're asking the wrong guy about that one. I can accept anything. I will say that smoked fish and chocolate doesn't sound like it's doable to me. And just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. should. <laughs> but I've been surprised. I think more than any other person in the public eye in the food business, I don't think anyone has tasted as many strange combinations of things put in front of them as I have. And Many times I have been amazingly surprised at the transformative mm -hmm. power of two ingredients stuck together. So I try to remain open-minded. The name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Oh my gosh, turning more chickens. I'll leave it to others to tell me if I've been breaking more dishes. To wrap up everything, at the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish. Other Portuguese uh, phrase, to sell, when someone tells you to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself. You know, what's in the future for you? You also have your, your restaurants, Lucky Cricket. What's in the future, where people can find you and all of that? All things Andrew Zimmern are at andrewzimmern.com. I obviously, we have a whole bunch of TV stuff, a new series called Family Dinner that comes out on Magnolia Network in March. Knock on wood, we're shooting a new season of What's Eating America this coming fall. I'm going to be working on a fifth book next year, trying to think our hospitality company is growing. And, uh, but we stick, we're very public about what we're doing. I think most importantly, I would want your listeners to go to our website and check out our partners page see all the people that we're working with and for and try to spread the awareness of people who don't have as much as we do. Andrew, this was a true pleasure. Thank you very much. If I ever go to Minneapolis, I'll bring you some tin codfish or octopus or sardines. Okay. Please. It's, I'll text it's, you. it's mother's milk to me. I appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. <laughs> Thank you have you a great much. day. Did you like that episode? Raise your hands. Me too. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I'm so grateful for all the messages and comments that you have left. And if you haven't done that, don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast, share, tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes, and you can also send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Don't forget I release an episode every Tuesday and Friday of each week, so stay tuned all the time. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Have an amazing day. Adios.